You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Daily Podcast in partnership with Travel Bag, creating holidays packed full of exciting memories since 1979. We'll do our best not to talk about the World Cup today. There's been so much cricket going on away from the tournament that we've not properly talked about, so today's the day for that. I'm Yaz Rana and today I'm joined by the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. How's it going? Very well, Yaz. Good to be here. And we're joined today by the editor of the Wisdom Almanac, the Bible of Cricket, Lawrence Booth. Great to have you on, Lawrence. Are you World Cupping well? Thanks, yes. Yes, I'm I'm all over the place. Durham last night, uh, Birmingham the day before. So, yeah, I'm seeing all corners of the country. We'll start with my moment of the week for once, which was Sarah Taylor stumping in the first Women's Ashes game at Leicester uh, to dismiss uh, Elise Perry. It was a proper Sarah Taylor special, one of those stumpings down the leg side that goes viral on Twitter within minutes. The Women's Ashes got off to an incredible start. England reduced to 19 for four. Elise Perry and Megan Shute doing the damage up top. Shute getting the ball to swing miles. I don't think I've ever seen a bowler swing the ball into a batter more than her in her opening spell. Um, her delivery to Sarah Taylor was amazing. Look it up if you haven't already. Uh, Nat Skiver scored a gritty 64 to help England up to 177. She was ably supported by Laura Marsh and Sophie Eccleston who both scored 20 odd. England just about kept themselves in the game throughout the Australia innings taking wickets at regular intervals in the run chase and very nearly won. They eventually lost by two wickets. Anya Shrubsall dropping a regulation court and bowl chance off Delissa Kamintz that perhaps proved costly. What a, what a game. What a start to women's ashes. A great start. And as you say, it looked at one point as if it's going to be an Australian waltz, really. Um, and, you know, confirming some of the pre-series suspicions that they do have the edge over, mm. over England. Because you feel like it's a big series for English women's cricket. We're two years on now from, from the famous World Cup victory over India that day when Lords was packed out. Women and children came. Um, you know, all these strange demographics that we're trying to attract to the, to the sport. Uh, and we, I, I just feel that you know we lost a bit of momentum last summer, and we need a good Ashes this summer. It would help if England won, but my, uh, probably the money is just on Australia. So, 
you feel England need to win these close games because there might be a couple of thrashings in there. Yeah, I got that impression as well that this was a game that England really needed to win. You can, I can almost see that at the end of the Ashes we'll look back at, oh, we lost that by two wickets when we were given an opportunity to get back in the game. Yeah, ahead of the ODIs, I thought that this was the leg that England really needed to win, particularly thinking back to that World T20 where Australia beat England in the final, but Australia was, was streets ahead of England in that tournament, I thought. And I thought 50 over cricket might, might kind of um, lessen that gap slightly. Again, Australia dominated that first game until that late collapse. Yeah. The match is going on right now, um, so it will have finished by the time you're yeah. listening to it. England has started quite well. Tammy Bowman's got Tammy 50. Bowman in the runs. It feels already like, you can't say a must-win game, this is an absolutely vital game for England uh, in the context of the overall series, not to go 4-0 down um, with three T20s at the end and a, and, a, and a test match in between. And there's one bit in the England innings that uh, England can count themselves quite unlucky. Fran Wilson was given out glove before wicket. Um, she was sweeping a ball and it the ball just hit a glove. Didn't, I don't think it even hit her pad. Um, there are no reviews in the women's ashes, but also you've got umpires who are finding their feet at the top level. Martin Saggers is a really good umpire, but he's not that experienced at international level. That's not a great combination, inexperienced umpires and no reviews. Yeah, I, I mean, I suspect Saggers, if he got the chance again, would probably give it. Would probably have not not have triggered um, poor old Wilson, but uh, the main problem is essentially that there's no DRS. I mean, that was precisely the kind of decision that DRS was brought in for. It was it was the howler. It's not the marginal decisions that players most players use it for now. And I think if a uh, you know we, we talk about equality between the genders in cricket now, if we're serious about that, then we should be supplying the women with uh, the proper technology to avoid scenarios like that. I thought she took it pretty well actually. She she kind of looked a bit shocked, but she didn't she didn't hang around. She didn't gesture to her arm too much you know if it had been some men's players I can think of all hell would have broken loose so they got away with it in a way because she was quite good natured about the decision. It does feel now uh, we're so used to DRS in all men's international cricket that to have any televised game without DRS whatever level just seems very unfair on the umpires because we see it with international the top level umpires getting decisions wrong routinely even if only very slightly wrong so to then get in theory a lower standard of umpire without DRS there to protect them it seems Quite unfair, really. And then, of course, nowadays it goes all over Twitter and everyone's saying Martin Sag is what an awful umpire. It's a much worse decision because there wasn't the chance to correct it. Um, it, it was a thrilling game, but uh, that Taylor stumping and that shoot delivery aside, the quality wasn't great. It was a bit like uh, the New Zealand South Africa game in the World Cup where you had an amazing finish to the game, but it wasn't perhaps an amazing game leading up to this it. This was Mark Butcher's point at the time, wasn't he? He was yeah. saying it wasn't a good cricket match. It can be an exciting game yeah, without being exactly. a good game. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I kind of enjoy watching games like that when, when, you're, when you're never quite sure when a bat is going to give it away. I, I mean, it was it's the first game of the Ashes, so you, you think the pressure's really on them, so you're, you're, you can understand why there's there's so much in the players' heads. Yeah, although England shouldn't be rusty. They'd won, was it 13 wins in a row they'd mm. got up to by the start of this series? And fair enough, that wasn't against opposition as, as strong as uh, Australia but they had beaten India in India which is no mean feat these days so you'd have hoped that England would have started uh, a bit more fluently than they did um, so hopefully today uh, might be the day I mean to be honest aside from that uh, start where they fell to 19 for 4 44 for 5 England actually did really well they fought back didn't they um, you know Nat Sivers is a, a serious middle order player now um, I, mean, I, I, I quite like the fact we can sit here now and say it wasn't a great standard because it means that it's being taken seriously as a format. You know, a couple of years back, people might have been a bit afraid of sort of uh, you know, perhaps offending the, the, the women cricketers, but we can now say when we expect better of them. And they, you know, the, with the pro- professionalisation that's come into the women's game, the, the, the scrutiny's gone up, and they they sh- they should be treated in the same way as the men are in that respect from the from the punditry point of view. So 
England are going to have to lift their game, definitely, if they're going to stay in touch with Australia. Lawrence, what's your moment of the week? Well, you'll be shocked to know, given what I think I said last time I was on this show, um, it's the fact that Northamptonshire won a county championship game um, for the first time this season. Uh, I was at Edgbaston for India against Bangladesh when the news came through and I couldn't help as a facetious tweet saying that huge cheer goes up as news arrives from Hove that Northampton should have won their first game of the season. Of course, they were just cheering because Coley had burped or something like that. We, but don't, anyway, know, we don't know that necessarily. Well, there might have all, it might have been both things at the well, same time. It, well, I'd love to think that was the case. Um, they Northampton's got 290, I think, against Sussex and won by 393 runs. Um, which is pretty amazing. Uh, that their biggest ever win by runs and Sussex's biggest ever defeat by a county by runs in in one game. Not oh, wow. bowled them out for 105 and 106. Ben Sanderson 10 for 55. And now he's he he's one of the of wickets, he's so. one of the great underrated Division Two seamers. If you look at his career figures, it's 200 wickets at 21. Now that's a damn handy guy to have, you know, in Division Two. My my fear as is always the case with Northampton players who do well, is that they'll just get picked up by Nottinghamshire, probably, or is Yorkshire. He, is he di- and there will, might be people say, well, he's taking those wickets in Div 2 on some pretty tasty wickets. Is he? A, does he look like a Div 1 bowler to you? Well, p- possibly not. I mean, he's he's kind of late 70 miles an hour. He's very, very slightly round arm, doesn't go totally over the perpendicular. He's very accurate and nibbles it both ways. And the fact is, Northant's got 300 in their second inning, so it wasn't a minefield at Hove. He's he's a, just a very good operator. He's, he's in his late 20s. He's come from Yorkshire. He's a kind of Yorkshire reject, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, pretty well. Yeah. So he's probably too late in his career to make a big impact, but perfect for Northant. So if they get him for another three or four seasons, they won't lose him like they did with Gleeson to, to Lancashire or any other the good players they produce. So... Um, that was very exciting. I well, have to say. I'm just looking at the Sussex lineup. It's a good Sussex team there. Yes. You know, oh. Phil Salt, Baron Chopra, Wells, Evans, Rawlins, Ben Brown. You, you know, name it, they team. were playing. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> perhaps the, 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 the most fun aspect of the result was that in the space of a minute, Northants went from 10th in Division 2 to 4th just by virtue of that single win. I think Derbyshire have since overtaken them. But they, they went from, you know, laughing stock bottom of the table to pushing for promotion so that's what we like to see yeah, it's because three up this year right Absolutely. so what looking at the table now 12 points behind Sussex no 17 points behind Sussex but with a game in hand so it's on it's on look who's bottom yeah well it's Middlese- fine Middlesex of yeah I mean, what, they've what's had a happened? shocking few years well they can't buy a run they've got a still a very strong bowling attack but you can't win games if you don't score any runs and and that's been the case for a, for a few years now I mean ever since they won the, the championship really it's been Really difficult times for them. You still look down that batting line. That's, that's almost the same side that was the the core of their twenty sixteen team. That alone, Robson, I mean, Eskenazi, Gubbins, Milan, Finn, Holden. He's he's young, but he's very highly rated. Uh, Simpson, Ronan Jones, Hellman, Souter. That's what eight that side were core members of their twenty sixteen winning team. And a lot of, and quite a few of them played international cricket. Or in the case of Gubbins, was touted as England's next opener. Although there's not an opener in the land that hasn't been touted as England's next opener, but but he was one of the stronger candidates at one stage. It was at the start of the season. We had a, a press conference with Stuart Law sort of to herald his his, his arrival and you know he, the, the way he spoke about what he perceived to be the talent at Middlesex he, he, he seemed genuinely excited I mean th- this will come as a huge shock to him the, the, the expectation was very much that they'd go up there'd be no question about it three up this season out of ten it'll be Middlesex Lancashire and Sussex or whoever to be tenth at this point is is absolutely staggering. So it could be it could be one of the the bad news stories of the season if it stays that way. Because they've been the kind of the worst white ball side in the country or one of them for the last few years. But they seem to have kind of just about picked that up a little bit. Uh, they got they qualified in the one day cup, I think, didn't they? Uh, and now their red ball form has completely mm. deserted them. 
Joe, what's your moment of the week? Mine, again from County Cricket, is uh, Daniel Beldrummond of Kent. His first Championship 100 for three years since April 2016 was the last one. Um, he scored 166 uh, against Warwickshire at Canterbury, um, which is his highest ever first-class score. Uh, and it's been a long time coming for a phenomenally talented player. I grew up in Canterbury uh, and he was one of those names in uh, Kent cricketing circles. He was talked about literally before he was even in his teens. He was that good and everyone was saying this this guy's going to go and play for England. And he did very well to start with. He's got a brilliant white ball record still, but really just hasn't kicked on at all in, in Championship cricket. Average 19 in Division 2 when they got promoted last year. I remember speaking to Matt Walker at the back end of that season. He said, actually, I think... Division one might suit him a bit better, that the pitches are a bit truer. Almost the better the standard, the better he'll do. And there's been signs of that uh, so far this season. Not to take anything away from that 100. You're going to take something but, away but, from but, it, aren't you? But he scored that against a Warwickshire side uh, who had a bowling attack of three low knees. So Toby Lester from Lancashire, Ben Mike plucked from Leicester Twos and James Wainman from Yorkshire. I mean, as so a it's proper... So it's for three years and you've just entirely dismissed it. As well, well. It's, a, it's a terrible injury crisis in Warwickshire. That, that is, and also three when, low knees. when Warwickshire responded with 570 to Kent's 570, you'd say it's probably a pretty flat track there as well. Yeah, but uh, we'll move on to Warwickshire's innings. Um, it was really important for them to, to, to get those runs because given the, uh, the situation in Division 1, only one team going down, uh, they really needed to get some points from that game. And Dom Sibley did what Dom Sibley's been doing all season, 244. Um, he's now got more than 200 runs and the second highest run scorer in Division 1. Um, we've talked about it quite a lot on this show so far this season. You think right now he's in pole position for a, for a top three berth for that Ireland Test match in a couple of weeks' time? Well, that's incredible, isn't it? What is it, 800s in 10 first-class matches so, yeah. across two seasons? Um, I mean, I, I remember I was here a couple of years back, it may have even been three years ago, and he, he, he got a double hundred against Yorkshire. I think it was five, six years was ago. Was it really? Yeah. My God, time he, was, flies. he just turned 18. That's frightening. Um, because he was a schoolboy, an absolute schoolboy prodigy. I mean, we talk about... Schoolboy prodigies. This guy was sort of, you know, all over the all over the competition for several years, mm. and some some people who knew him well felt he was an absolute shoe in for England. And then after that double hundred uh, against Yorkshire, he he sort of faded, and you thought, is he one of these guys who just won't be able to make the step up? He's he's been used to being so successful in the moment. Good bowlers find him out, he will struggle. But he's gone away, and he's ground out the runs now. Some people may say he'll score too slowly, but we can't. We've been slagging off the England top order for the last three years because they throw it away. Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins may be too much for him, but they'd probably be too much for any England opener at the moment. I'd get Jason Roy in for a start. That's that's without wanting to go throw this too far ahead to the ashes. But I think if you had a Roy, you you could accommodate a Sibley. I mean, where that leaves. Rory Burns, I, I don't know. Roy at three, maybe. Well, yes. But then is Burns be. and Sibley a, a bit pedestrian as an opening pairing, potentially. But he's put his name in the hat when even even a fortnight ago, you'd have said he's still on the outside. Well, I think this double hundred has, has made people sit up and, and take notice. Um, I was up at Edgbaston the other day, Paul Farbrace was there chatting about Sibley over lunch and he's very positive about him. Um, it, it, funny things would happen. England need a top three and this guy is the man in form. It was funny how it fell away at Surrey because, yeah, as you said, he had been he was he was the big thing basically as as the young batsman coming up. Then didn't really score a run for a long time, and then he kind of drifted away. But then when he left, do you remember? I mean, Surrey's press release as he left was uh, 
didn't pretty, wish him well. They didn't wish him well. Uh, Alex Stewart was absolutely fuming. So uh, th- I thought the response of that showed, even if his form had fallen away, they still thought that he was going to come good. This was still a guy they had massive hopes for for the future. And it took a little while at Warwickshire as well. It didn't start particularly strongly because he went there mid-season, I think, didn't they? They were yeah, like, well, just, just go. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just go. Uh, and then started as a back end of last season one that him and Will Rhodes formed a really good opening partnership for, for Warwickshire which got promoted as well in the same game yeah um, it, always similarly it's quite easy to forget how young he is he's still only 23 and for an opening batsman that's still very young I mean he scored those runs yeah as I said six years ago as an 18 year old at the back end of the season um, so actually for a 23 year old he's doing incredibly well did Paul Farabase talk about him in a, in a technical sense what, what his strengths are and, and any issues potentially at, at test level I think there is a general feeling that you know he he might be a bit limited. Um, I mean, which may be part of the reason he scores so slowly. So it's always the one that gets thrown in there, isn't right, it? Yeah. But people said the same about Rory Burns. Well, precisely, and they probably said the same about Alistair Cook. You know, it, in a way, it doesn't matter if you're limited if you know your strengths and you stick to them. And clearly, he's 23, as you say, but he's scored all these hundreds. So the temperament isn't an issue, and temperament against the Aussie new ball attack will be absolutely crucial. Um, if he, if he grinds out. 106 hours no England fan will be complaining <laughs> this is exactly what we need also against that new ball attack if uh, if any one of our openers averages 32 well, I'd 100% take that as an I'll England fan I'll take 28 yeah, yeah 100% take that as an well, England fan it's, and it's also it's how those runs are scored isn't it yeah. if you bat out the first two sessions then, then you would take that particularly if you have Jason Roy coming in yeah. at, at three or and then the middle order, which we which we know when they've got a platform, which is very rarely, they could be absolutely devastating. 28 from 100 balls is what we're calling for. Um, at the top of the table, it's really interesting. Um, Somerset and Essex both won again. Um, and it's kind of a repeat of recent seasons. Uh, Essex won five from eight. Sussex, uh, Somerset have won six from eight. Uh, we've got a title race on our hands. Simon Armour is top of the wicket-taking charts with 49 wickets at 17. Jamie Porter not far behind with 33 at 24. The sun is out and you'd expect Siderabad to come to its fore in the next few weeks. Best and Leach took combined figures of five for 26 in the second innings to steal a win over Hampshire. Um, very exciting. We've got a title race. I guess we have. I mean, I'd I'd not quite given it up for Essex, but I, I, Somerset looked in a very, very strong position and I still think they are. Uh, I think... They've obviously fallen at the last hurdle quite a few times, but looking down that side and, and looking at the players' records in recent seasons, it's a really, really solid team. Uh, who I, I think this, I do think this will be their year, especially now they've got the kind of monkey off their back and won the one-day trophy. Um, it would be a great story, wouldn't it? I mean, do it for Marcus, who just yeah. announced his yeah. retirement and still still wants to break back into the first team. I mean, incredible, incredible drive he's got. I, I think most neutrals will be hoping Somerset get over the line. I mean, the, the only the only possible curmudgeons who would begrudge them victory I think would be um, Northants and, and Gloucestershire fans of a, with a certain historical bent who, who Somerset are the only team apart from those who not have won the formal county championship Gloucestershire won it in the days of WG before it was formalised in 1890 so you could argue Northants would be the only side that no I wouldn't won. argue that <laughs> they definitely didn't start formally until 1890 but before that they, they the press actually chose the county championship winners based on the results. Not, so how did that work? Not all teams played each other, yeah. so the press would make a judgment on who was the best team. So you can't... Bring that back in, I reckon. That's well, I'll tell you what, there are a lot of Northants fans in the press box. Um, so, so so if Somerset were to win, that would leave two counties. It would be slightly depressing, but I, I do wish Somerset well. I mean, they, there's, there's so much to like about that club, and you, you mentioned Siderabad earlier. Good on them. We need a first-class county headquarter that spins we need we, we, there should be two or three out of the 18 that spin just for the sake of english cricket and making it more 
uh, more varied. So I have no problem at all when when their pitch starts. Um, as a Northants fan, Northants were very good at producing spinners. Jason Brown, Graham Swan, and Monty Panesar came through at similar times. Why do you think that's the case? Was that were pitches? Like a bit like cider bad. Yeah, they were. In, in fact, they they probably did go too far. They got docked points uh, around that time, but they were they'd frequently pick three spinners. There was another guy called Mar- um, Michael Davis, who was a left armer, who was who was mentioned uh, in the England context at the time. I remember Ian Botham picking him in a, a squad to tour South Africa in 1992. He got the yips, but he was uh, as talented as the other three you mentioned. Brown went on an England tour to Sri Lanka, and of course, Panasar and Swan were the last two sort of serious specialist spinners to play for England. So. They they got scared by the ECBs, well TCCB as it was at the time, finding them for for the pitches, and that was a shame because they they then went away from that and back to sort of dull seamers with the with the issues we we see now there. Um, they should have had Northampton and now Taunton and perhaps the Old Trafford to a lesser degree. They should have been the turning tracks, and all the outgrounds should turn, shouldn't they? You know, you want such and Charles knocking over teams at Colchester years ago. You want that to be a theme of county cricket um so maybe it'll come again at northampton on on monty uh we had an interview with him in the last issue of wisdom cricket monthly he's absolutely adamant that he wants to continue playing uh first class cricket he's been at northampton right he's done some nets there is there any talk of him getting a contract or did that that just didn't work out i don't think it's going to happen um he he wrote to all the cattle got in touch with all the counties earlier in the season and at the time when I last spoke to him about this, only Kent had got back to him. What Paul Downton, the, the chief exec, the director of cricket there, said, come and bowl to the Pakistanis in the nets. That was when Pakistan were warming up for their one-day series against England. And he did. So I did a little story in the, on the Mail on Sunday about it at the time and spoke to him. And he was still adamant that he wanted to get a county contract. I think time's running out for him. Um, he says he's bowling really well. I mean, obviously he you would say, say that. that if you're looking yeah. for a county contract. But he said he's been bowling as well as he's done for years. It's right? a, there's obviously some baggage there as well. Well, there's there's baggage, but there's also the fact that, is, yeah, would a county want to take him on at this age? Um, you might have to go on a match-per-match contract. I mean, Northants had him on that a couple of seasons back. It, it, his, his figures weren't great. Mm. Um, I, I think the moment's probably passed him by now, and he should he should look at the next phase of his, his life there's, and career. There's probably already a number of good young English spinners not getting enough cricket as it is without throwing Monty kind of back into the pile as well. Yeah, so why, why do you think more counties don't do a Somerset and pre- and prepare pitches that turn a lot? Because it gets you results. I th- first of all, you have to have the attack. You know, I mean, Somerset have got you know, Leach and Bess and that, that works nicely for them. Uh, you have to, it's a risk because everyone else throws their arms up in horror. I mean, when Somerset beat Middlesex on, I mean, Gus Fraser described the pitch as diabolical or some sort of adjective like that. So they, they, you're more likely, and it, because of English cricket culture, you're more likely to be done for a turning pitch than a seeming pitch because everyone produces seeming pitches. But actually, the ECB should take a, a, a much more sort of broader perspective on this and say, we need all kinds of conditions in England if we're going to produce test cricketers who can flourish in different parts of the world. So I, Taunton is crucial to the kind of the overall ecosystem of English cricket at the moment. It'd be interesting to see if Somerset do go on and win the championship. Well, maybe we might get a few more cider bads or the equivalent next next year well, or a couple of years. Well, also nowadays every game, not every game, most county games and all Somerset games are streamed, so you can actually see yourself from from your living room actually how much it's turning. And I remember, I'm not sure if it was that game, but there was one game that was particularly low scoring at Taunton last season. And uh, it was criticised, but I remember watching the wickets. Like, it actually hasn't turned that much at all. Just actually, English batsmen aren't very good at facing good spin bowling. And also, if we are talking about preparing batsmen and bowlers for Test cricket. It does a little bit in India. It does a little bit in UAE. I mean, this is this is what we're. You don't. You can't replicate those conditions, but anything remotely reminiscent of them is no bad thing. 
Yeah, there was a thriller at Scarbados as well this week uh, with Yorkshire winning in the dying moments of day four. Uh, Surrey very nearly held on to a draw. Jamie Smith, who's just 18, finished not out on 24 from 93 balls against a Yorkshire attack featuring Keshav Maharaj, Juan Olafur, Ben Code and Dave Willey. 24 of 93 balls, get him opening the batting for England. Uh, <laughs> well, he, <laughs> apps, that is what we want, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe a bit young. But. Yeah, maybe a bit young. Um, an important uh, win for Yorkshire keeps him kind of in the title race in third place David Willey playing county championship cricket a world away from what's going on in the World Cup well he must look at his summer and just think what a weird what a weird time this is I mean the, the, that England game against Australia in the World Cup that was when you needed Willey wasn't it you needed a, the, the, the new ball bowler to pitch it up and swing it because uh, you know Archer was a bit short Wokes bowled quite well but still erred on the short side Willey would have been great in those conditions as Stark and Berendorf, two left-arm swing bowlers, later were in, were in the innings. So maybe this suggests that he hasn't necessarily given up on his test prospects, though again, I think that's probably unlikely. Um, though, of course, Jimmy Anderson has now got an injury, so who knows how that, that's going to affect the Ashes attack. But yeah, I, I think Willie just wants needs to play some cricket at the moment, doesn't he? That's what's on offer. Obviously, if England do go on to win it, Tom Curran would have been part of a World Cup winning squad, but and I'm sure he would take that over playing county cricket, but I don't know. It can't have been a brilliant few weeks for him either. Just there's very little chance of him playing now, is there? I mean, unless there's an injury, he won't. He won't just play. Just to Wokes, I think. I think that's the only way he comes in. Yeah. And even then, they might pick Moeen and change the the, the, the yeah. The Still, attack. I think you'd, you'd take it, wouldn't you? Yeah. Being on the World Cup road <laughs> show rather than playing county cricket. Lawrence, you mentioned uh, injury for Jimmy Anderson. It doesn't seem too bad. He was allowed to come back on to bat. Um, he's having quite a good season. He averages 9.36 in Division 2, um, which I guess you could have predicted, Jimmy Anderson, Division 2. Someone else who's doing really well in uh, Division 2 is Marnus Labashane or Labascania, depending depending on how you want to pronounce it. He scored his fifth hundred of the season to see him pass 1,000 first-class runs in 2019. Um, he's doing his Ashes chances a world of good. Um, but, Joe, how, how do you reckon the Aussie hierarchy are viewing those runs? Mm, not particularly highly I reckon I'm, perhaps I'm wrong but I do think if they're looking for a, a middle order option uh, and they're weighing up their different different options I think Aaron Finch having scored a huge amount of runs against some pretty high quality attacks in the World Cup albeit in a different format is probably banging down the door a little bit harder than um, Labuschagne is for, for Gamorgan but it's obviously useful to have this experience in, in English conditions but Division 2 pitches often are very different to the test pitches that we find uh, come the ashes Lawrence? Yeah, I agree. It's it's a kind of insurance policy by the Australian selectors, isn't it? That here's a guy who could slip in if someone gets injured. I I think England would be quite happy if Labuschagne is st- starts in the Ashes. Um, and of course, he's been getting used to Welsh conditions, hasn't he? Not English, so he's not been acclimatised at yeah. all. <laughs> I, I said I didn't want to talk about the World Cup. But there's one thing about the World Cup that I want to talk about. I mentioned it the other day when I was on with Ben Gardner that New Zealand, I think, are very lucky to qualify. Uh, the the rain has fallen at exactly the right times for them. Uh, their game against India was rained off and Pakistan's game against Sri Lanka was rained off. Uh, you, you never know what could happen in those games, but you just thought that Pakistan would have beaten Sri Lanka and New Zealand would have lost against India, which meant that if Pakistan beat Bangladesh tomorrow or today, depending on when you're listening to it, um, Pakistan would have gone through. You could argue um, even the games that New Zealand did play, they've been a little bit lucky. Yeah. Maybe they've made their own luck, but they've had some very close finishes and, and come out uh, on the on the better side of all of them. Absolutely. I was on the uh, 1992 uh, World Cup Wikipedia page this morning as as you do and there's one game trusted journalists yeah. <laughs> use that source that's it. Um, I, was, I was checking the references <laughs> I couldn't believe that, that, that Pakistan got a bowl out of a 74 against England in that World Cup 
Um, and England were 24 for one after eight overs. And it was a no result after being bowled out for 74. Pakistan got, got a point. And that's basically how they qualified for 92. And people are talking about all these similarities between 92 and 2019. If Pakistan win tomorrow, it'll be exactly the same World Cup, but they'll be knocked out in the group stages and Pakistan end up winning it. So I guess this is uh, New Zealand, New Zealand, who actually came first in the group stages in 92 and then lost the semi-final against Pakistan. So maybe uh, this is Pakistan's comeuppance for 1992. It's kind of, yeah, it does feel a bit like payback. I mean, the thing is, if Pakistan, if Pakistan's game against Sri Lanka had happened and Pakistan had won, the rest of the tournament would have played out differently because Pakistan would have been in a different frame of mind and perhaps the the pressure they might have felt at that point, they might have buckled. They only seem to play well when they've been written off. you know. So the, winning against Sri Lanka might have been the worst thing that could have happened. I take your point against about India against New Zealand, although weirdly in the, in the warm-up game here, yeah. New Zealand skittled them for 170 and won, won an absolute canter. Um, I think New Zealand have been a bit fortunate. Uh, they beat South Africa in the last over thanks to Kane Williamson. If Carlos Brathwaite had got another metre on that six at Old Trafford, they'd have lost to West Indies. And they've just lost their last three games against decent sides. Yeah. Um, they're the team that the other three would like to play in the semis. Australia would probably get the honour, I'd have thought. You'd much rather play, it's not going to happen, you'd much rather play New Zealand than Pakistan in the semi-finals, wouldn't you? I, Absolutely. I think, yeah. Yes, but I think New Zealand always have it in them to just skittle any team out. If Bolt fires with a new ball Ferguson has been one of the bowlers of the tournament you never know uh, I think their batting is just pretty weak to be well honest. they got rid of that Australian top order didn't they yeah. which no, no other team's really been able to do uh, and then kind of didn't didn't follow through and then batted poorly as they really with the exception of Williamson and Jimmy Neesham a bit they've batted poorly throughout the tournament I mean Tom Latham is very fortunate to still be in the side got a few runs yesterday um, speaking to Andrew Alderson, the Kiwi reporter, he wondered if they'd been better off putting Latham as an opener, which is obviously his test role, um, and having Henry Nichols in the middle order, which is also his, his test role. It's unlikely they'll try that now, but it, what what they have tried hasn't really worked for them. Yeah, I kind of feel like Martin Guptill's too good a player to be out of form for this long, so the Aussies better watch out in the semi-final. A couple of questions we've got on the on the Ask Wisdom hashtag on Twitter. So remember, folks, you can, you can ask questions to the panel by just adding on hashtag ask wisdom at the end of your tweet so question number one Lawrence why was Don Bradman so much better than anyone else who's ever played the game simple question how old does he think Lawrence is yeah. he? he finished his career just before I was born um, he well when you read about him uh, he, he didn't seem to ever hit the ball in the air uh, which helped I think he had one test six ever uh, so he, he was ruthless in his the way he calculated the game um, and he he was a he had an ultra-professional mind at a time when people were quite amateurish about their approach. So he, he had no problems crushing an attack, whereas Jack Hobbs might score 100 and then hit one up in the air because he felt it was somehow bad manners to you know humiliate the poor bowlers. Bradman didn't have that issue. He obviously had ex- exceptional hand-eye coordination. I mean, he famously uh, taught himself to bat by you know throwing a golf ball against a, a water cooler and hitting it with a stump. So he was... Uh, he had exceptional talents in that respect, but he was incredibly driven made a great success of his life after cricket which showed you the kind of um mind he had uh and others at the time didn't take the game quite so seriously plus i mean sorry i'm going on a bit here but no not at all but indian fans will say look tendulkar scored runs in all conditions and bradman only ever played uh test cricket in two countries um so he never he was never tested on a, a dusty turner in in india or a a, a, a vicious sort of pace uh, track in in the Caribbean in the 80s or whatever how would he have fared against them we don't know it's it's all academic the fact is 
He averaged nearly 100 in the next bloke ever in Test cricket with who played a certain amount of games and averaged 60. So, you know. Yeah, I, I guess the thing, I think uh, Bradman's stats wouldn't be so extraordinary if there was somebody who averaged 85. But it's just that uh, you could argue that Bradman's test batting average is like the greatest statistical anomaly in any sport. It is. And going, going back to some of drawing what Lawrence said, I mean, I, I, the idea, I obviously didn't see Sobers play myself, but there was a suggestion that he was so good that at, at points he would kind of just get bored or think his job was done and then get out. Uh, and obviously with Bradman, that just never happened. There was a kind of an, uh, an absolute ruthlessness, uh, a kind of selfishness to, to his game. And the stories of tour games where he just bat on and on and on to the kind of embarrassment of his teammates. I think there was one with Keith Miller, wasn't there? It was particularly it was against Essex, I think. When they yeah, that's right. They scored 700 in a day or something like that. Has Keith Miller let himself be bold? Yeah, he he's bowled first ball and thought this and Bradman was absolutely fuming. <laughs> um, Bradman was dropped after one or two tests in his career against England. He's played as a young guy in late 20s and that, that formed him as a character. He was determined that never to happen again. He was determined if he, if he was in, he was going to score 300. Uh, which he did in a day at Headingley once. You know, he he just had a, an insatiable appetite and no one's been able to match it. I mean, I, I quite like the fact that he, he came here 1948 for his final test innings needing four runs to average 100 and, his, and he was bowled second ball by Eric Holly's googly um, because it meant that we still don't have cricket perfection. You know, no one's averaged 100 in mm. test history and it would have been a bit of a shame if they had that that, that little percentage, 99.94 I think it is, still waiting to be improved well you've actually got two players who average more than him Prithi Shaw I believe averages over 100 and the West Indian Andy Gantown yeah 112 let's not forget him yeah <laughs> I, th- I think we're talking about a, a decent statistical size here yes but yeah I'll take your point uh, question number two uh, we'll start with Joe why are there no Scouse cricketers <laughs> why did you give me the much harder question is that even a question uh, first of all are there no Scouse cricketers I mean we did debate this earlier and we're really struggling uh, there have been like a few county players. We came up with Ian Cobain. Yeah. Uh, and there's two of them. So two Ian <laughs> Cobains. So that's my answer. There are. Uh, so your question doesn't make any sense. So I, I looked it up. So uh, the only test cricketer, I'm sure there are more, like I find, is Alan Steele, uh, who scored the first Test 100 Lords in 1884. Um, I'm sure there are more. I think he played in the first ever Test match as well. Where was Ian um, Austin from? Not a Scouser. Oh, he's not a Scouser. No, no. He's, a, he's, a, he's a Lancashire man through and through, isn't yeah. he? I think, I think yeah. Tom Smith of Lancashire, he's a scouser, right, I yeah. believe. Yeah, you could um, be right, actually. But that is odd, right, for a city as big as Liverpool not to yeah. produce... And they have egg, uh, yeah, egg, uh, covered a game, Lancashire North Ants 2003, I think, a county match. Eggbirth, where you, in the distance you can see the, the Mersey estuary and we're in a little potting shed where if you open the, if you open the door to get out, uh, you block the player's view. The, so they'd be bang, banging angrily in the dressing room window and there's only one exit so if the if the guy there were four of you squeezed in the guy on the left needed the toilet all the other three had to troop out <laughs> behind the bowler's arm holding up it was an absolute fiasco but it was good fun and uh, so Egberth there is there is a tradition of cricket in Liverpool um, but it is a, look I think there's a wisdom piece in this where are the Scouse cricketers didn't they they Lancashire hurt? played a lot of their games at Liverpool when they won the county championship right it's weird though isn't it I can't, I can't remember any post-match interview for any cricket game I've watched where you hear a Scouse accent <laughs> you think of any, every other accent anyway we've, we've gone into that question perhaps a bit too much um, <laughs> Lawrence thank you so much for coming on my pleasure thanks for having me Joe thanks for coming on cheers Yaz uh, this has been the Wisdom Cricket Daily Podcast in partnership with Travel Bag, creating holidays packed full of exciting memories since 1979. If you've not already, folks, subscribe and tell your friends. See you next time.
Social Podcast Network.